afternoon, you're on the panel on RNZ National. Sue Kedgley and Phil O'Reilly joining me today. Now, less than 48 hours to go. All eyes on Saturday night. And we'll talk the recent polls in a bit with our panel. But this RNZ piece was worth bringing up. How to talk politics with your mates when they don't vote. Like you, I'm sure. Something that we've all come across if you are... Having people around to watch the election coverage over a wine, perhaps. Well, the weather might dominate the first hour, and it's going to be bad weather. Talk will inevitably turn to politics. To how to negotiate that? We thought we'd get a psychologist on with us. Is Dunedin-based psychologist Diane Bellamy. Diane, very nice to have you on the panel. Oh, kia ora, Wallace from Otipoti. Yeah, kia ora, Diane. Fair to say there's been a bit of uh, lingering discord in the past two years, so uh, we're getting round. It's election night. There will possibly be a lot to say to each other, I can imagine. Uh, yes, it's something we have to negotiate a lot with family and friends. Um, I was just thinking this through, Wallace, and yeah. apart from managing my own fangirl joy talking with you, I was thinking if we were at a social dinner gathering and we had a discussion which revealed vast differences in our core values, I can't imagine that, Wallace, but that could be the case. <laughs> if that occurred, I could change the subject cleverly, register my confusion and say something like, well, Wallace, you do have great taste in music. I'm an Earth, Wind & Fire fan, avid fan like you. Distraction oh, is beautiful. It sounds and, like I need to sort of uh, watch election night with you there, Diane. <laughs> look, we can look for the commonality between us and separate politics often, but not always, from behaviour and characteristics that we like, admire and respect. And we have to do that, mm. often with our closest family and friends. Well, that's that's been raised with uh, some of our listeners. But before we get into our panel, do you think that we need, we need to relearn on how to disagree again? Because many of us has grow, have grown up in a social media echo chamber, so we may, may not be confronted with opinions that we do not like. I think it's really important maturity sign to agree to disagree and sometimes we can do this with certain people and situations in our life and um, I was just thinking about this today uh, I had um, uh, I was talking to a very pleasant tow truck driver who was taking myself and my broken car back home to Dunedin from Fiordland I was there on a grief mission scattering my husband's ashes mm. on some beautiful scenic great walks now, this Tommy and I gelled so well naturally on politics. It would have been a rather awkward ride if, uh, you know, it's a long drive. Um, but I know that some of my friendship circle will vote very differently to me, while others will hold almost identical views. So it's hey, really important to navigate yeah. that. Oh, wonderful, Diane. Thanks for that, um, sharing that. Now, uh, Sue Kesley, what's your take on this? Well... I must confess it's not re- hasn't really been a problem uh, for me because I mean I I don't set out to convert people or proselytize mm-hmm. but but I do agree with the context that you know this polarizing uh, debate, particularly online, um, we, you know we don't want to end up like America with you know two sort of tribes that will never ever compromise. Mm. But interestingly. I mean, I, I was thinking yesterday I was at a social gathering with a whole group of women for three hours. 
the word election never even cropped up. Mm. So a lot of people, it's just not a big issue. On the other hand, I have a lot of people who are in a quandary mm. about how to vote. They, you know, they can't work out which way. And so they're really interested in having these discussions. And um, there was a guy on Marcus Lush's talkback last night. He said, Aside from marriage, deciding how to vote this time in the election is the most difficult decision in my life. So there's a lot of people like that in a quandary, and Uh they're all trying to make up their mind. And I think the question will be, are these undecided voters going to finally make up their mind and get to vote, or or are they going to stay away? Because the people who don't vote are just as important as those who do in determining uh, an election. Stay there, Diane. Let's bring Phil in as well. Well, I was wondering who Earth, Wind and Fire voted for, as a matter of fact, on the basis of that, because it's all about the election at the moment, isn't it? Well, um, well someone says here an Act supporter could actually put me off Earth, Wind and Fire if it was a common interest. Um, another one here. Took my elderly auntie to the voting station. She rocks and announces to all the voting to all the volunteers, she's voting green! <laughs> Says yeah, Nicole in Christchurch. What's your take on this issue? Well, I think, I think, Diane, I think you're absolutely right. The, the important thing, I think, is to celebrate the politics and the people. Just yeah. because you don't agree with me or whatever, we've got a difference of opinion about a particular thing, doesn't mean that you're therefore a nasty person or I don't want to talk to you about something else. I think we should really focus on that. And some worrisome stuff out of the US that yeah. I've been reading suggests that's exactly what's happening in the US. If you don't agree on politics, then you won't be friends with that person anymore. And that's how. That's it's such an important part right? of our exactly. Yeah. It's such an important part of our yeah. of our country that we can still have these debates uh, sensibly and, and move on and have a beer and talk about well, the blacks or whatever it might be. I remember Di- reading that in the, their Thanksgiving dinners over in America that many they. they Many people sort of couldn't have them because they had family that disagreed mm. on mm. politics. Well, I mean, that's, it's just that's, ludicrous. that's just extraordinary to hear, yeah. Diane. Uh, yes, I, I've actually um, counselled um, some people who live in uh, beautiful Aotearoa and they've left family overseas. And look, it's just an absolute grief when entire families virtually cut you off. So, for example, extended families may be avid Trump supporters and my client is coming to terms with the gun-toting Republican statements and their left-leaning um, from those who they hold near and dear. It's absolute adjustment, and it's difficult but not impossible to navigate. Really well, don't nice. even discuss politics. Yeah. Absolutely. There's Dine, a boundary. Diane, uh, lovely yeah. to have you on the program. Hope to get you back on again. Thank you. Yeah, that's Diane Bellamy there, Dunedin-based psychologist there. Quite, that's, that's quite something, isn't yeah, it? Agree, quite agree. revealing. It's, a, it's actually a reminder, nice reminder of how lucky we are here. Exactly, and, and, and that we can actually engage on the, on the public policy rather than just the politics. You know, you can, yeah. you can be disagreed on the politics and still talk logically about the policies. So before we move on, just a word on those two polls last night because you're both politicos in a sense. Now the main theme being uh, New Zealand's main parties will not be able to form a government without the support of New Zealand First. And then you had Tuesday's Guardian essential poll showing the party uh, on 8.2% leapfrogging National's favoured coalition partner at 7.9%. So um, you know, Phil, I, I can recall the scenes at the Duke of Marlborough last election. You know, it was all quiet on the Western Front. And RNZ did a big piece, big ten-minute piece, entitled "The Show Is Over." Yeah, <laughs> the sh- it's it's still online. The show is over. Here we are again. I agree, and it's it's it will be the Winston Show, I dare say. But the there's an important point 
that I'm seeing in the voting trends, and Sue's actually mentioned this, turnout. Uh, we are seeing a lower turnout than you did in the last election uh, for, for advanced voting. And that might suggest one or two things. One, one might be that people are waiting for the day and that it'll be a bit of that. But I think also there might be a low turnout more generally because of a sort of a turn-off issue around the politics and the, and the, and the process more generally. And low turnout generally doesn't favour the incumbent. It's usually people who turn out will want to turn out to change things. That's why they'll get out on a bad day or whatever it might be. So one of the things I think we'll need to watch out for on election night is not just how the, how the, the party votes for, but also who's actually turning out because that could have quite a big Im- impact on the on the final verdict, and, and that doesn't tend to be picked up in the polls. And just a word mm-hmm. on the Greens, Sue, uh, of which you were a former MP. Now the Greens on fourteen percent, I think, sort of both polls, fourteen point two percent. Was that right? Uh, anyway, that would deliver what a record seventeen MPs in the Parliament. If it stayed that way, which uh, it, it certainly may well not do. But your thoughts on that? Well. Yeah, no, the Greens uh, still seem to be surging, while Axe vote seems to be um, declining and switching to New Zealand first, and Nationals uh, could be stalling. So, the, the, But the question is, uh, you know, are two million people going to vote on election day? Because that's how many people haven't voted. And um, I agree that if, if we've got a very low voter turnout, that is going to significantly... Um, influence the election. But I, th- I think the thing about the Greens, I mean, in Wellington Central, they've got 400 young people working on their campaign, whereas the national candidates probably got a dozen people. You know, I mean, it's that grassroots campaigning, which um, some parties like the Greens are very good at. And some of those, you know, more conventional parties, you know, the, the, their members are not that keen on door knocking and phoning, and, and that's becoming quite a significant factor in the campaign. All right, yep, 18 Actually, past, you, yep. some people are also saying that it may very well be that to party Māori's vote is being underestimated because of the difficulty of uh, getting them on um, these telephone polls. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you. 18 past four, the panel, RNZ National, Phil O'Reilly and Sue Casually today. Well, living rurally is often romanticised, out in the fresh air, walking down the road to your small school. But new research out shows students who attended rural schools were about 15% less likely to gain university entrance between 2012 and 2021. This could be an issue for students from rural backgrounds to get into competitive first-year uni courses like, say, medicine or law or engineering. And many rural areas are currently facing a lack of doctors. To discuss further, Dr Kyle Eggleton from the Faculty of Medical and Health Sciences at the University of Auckland. Dr Eggleton, welcome. Kia Yeah, why did you look into this? Well, I mean, one of the things we've got this, um, you know, workforce crisis in, in rural areas as far as health goes. And um, we're trying to work out how we can improve that. Um, what I've noticed with our students is that our rural entry students tend to have a lower grade point average than other students. And so I was interested in whether this stems from issues around their high schooling, which would lead to kind of like poor educational attainment. Did you find the results surprising? Well, knowing that our rural kind of entry students in medicine have low grade point average, mm. no, right. kind of like that's what I was expecting yeah. to see. Mm. Um, what what if oh, the panel will come in? So, what if the focus is different? Perhaps you know you wouldn't see the same 
proportion of city kids doing rural jobs, going to work on farms, and they're all jobs, you know, that need filling. So is it a different pathway to success? No, no, not at all, because, you know, urban um, kids can go into trades and a whole bunch of other jobs as well. So to say that rural kids are only destined for agricultural jobs is quite a deficit focus, really. And we need professionals in rural areas just as much as you need professionals in urban areas. Mm. Sue? Um, Well, you know, sort of we shouldn't really be surprised by this study, should we? I mean... Uh, if you come from an isolated and disadvantaged community which is lacking resources and perhaps even teachers, it's probably almost inevitable that you'll see lower levels of students getting university entrance, NCEA, etc., etc. But isn't that one of the reasons why the, uh, the, the need to try to attract health workers in rural areas where there's such a critical shortage of doctors and others, isn't that one of the reasons why the University of Waikato is wanting to set up a medical school in Hamilton uh, focused on training GPs for rural areas? Um, yes, it is. But at both Otago and Auckland, we also have a focus on training rural medical students as well. So we have a, um, a, a rural origin entry pathway into Auckland University. And we have a rural stream where we try and foster an interest in rural medicine. And then we have a bunch of regional rural kind of pa- um, programs. So uh, we are doing a whole bunch of stuff to try and foster an interest. But one of the most um, important pieces about having a rural origin because if you've got a rural origin, you're more likely to kind of come back and, and work um, rurally. Right. Yeah, How are your programs oh, working? Uh, they are working to a degree, but not um, not not properly. No, there's there's failings in the program. There's more things we can do for sure. Yeah, I was interested, Kyle. I, I was actually reading a book about this very matter on the plane on the way up this morning because that's because I'm an interesting guy. Uh, <laughs> and it was the uh, right. and it was there was an interesting. Uh, international comparator to all this, where um, in uh, over the last few decades, isolation generally, no matter where you are in the world, is an indicator of poorer educational performance. So, students in the Outer Hebrides in the UK, students in the Appalachian Mountains in in the United States, g- generally did more poor poorly than other kids just like them in cities. So, isolation clearly is an issue, not just in New Zealand but all around the place. Uh, so, are you seeing any? Interesting trends from offshore, where say out of the UK or out of out of the Appalachians, for example, in the US, where you might be able to turn some of that around for students who want it. Because I think, you know, the Huranui College principal in that article we're talking about here was saying, well, actually, we need to be a bit cautious about this. These kids might want jobs in rural areas, and they might be very happy with the education they're getting. So it's important not to to put put our judgment on on what's going on here. But have, have you seen international things going on that might you might be able to copy here or might be able to adapt for here? Well, I think there's some strategies overseas in in which um, you know other universities kind of really target the rural students and kind of um, put in place some educational um, support pre-medicine to yeah. try and get them up to speed. So that's certainly a strategy that we're looking at. We've potentially got some funding for doing that at Auckland. But I, I want to come back to that comment that principal made, and I, I think it's kind of quite problematic in some ways because. Um, what we see, especially for Māori students, is that we, you know, the literature demonstrates that high schools and teachers um, kind of like have a lower expectation or a bit mm. of a deficit framing around right. Māori students and their and kind of what jobs they should do. 
and I, I think that's kind of like translated into this study as well because what we saw was that um, it was lower socioeconomic areas and schools with high Māori populations which were the ones that were most affected as far as um, NCA attainment. Someone says, newsflash, rural kids can be urban professionals and urban kids can be farmers. Um, so finally, what's what's the next steps? I mean, do the rural schools have enough resources to get young people into these univ- competitive university courses? I mean, I'd say that they probably don't. I mean, I think if you know we're trying to have an equity focus, that really means that you need to put more resources into Absolutely. schools that mm. are struggling. Um, I also think we need to kind of like challenge some of the thinking around that rural students should really only go into agricultural jobs or trades because I think that really needs to be critiqued and and um, kind of criticised a little bit. But but, um, but also supported if they want to make that choice, right? Well, absolutely. Yeah, supported if they want to make that choice. Um, but also, you know, we've got really bright kids that come through in medicine, especially Māori kids, and they tell us, that their teachers at school told them, you know, don't think about being a doctor. You know, you're not going to be good enough to be a doctor. Good to have you on, Kyle. Kia ora. That's uh, Dr. Kyle Eagleton from the Faculty of Medical and Health Sciences at Auckland University. Interesting uh, topic, that one, Phil. Yeah. Um, you, you're kind of swaying along the sides is that you don't tell those rural kids what to do. If they want to go on the farm and work because it's down, it's down the road, they have every right to. Yeah, I think it's just important to, to let the kids in those communities self-actualise about their about their views and, and actually take a view that if I want to be on a farm and I want to do a farm job, that's okay with but me. But what if that same town has trouble attracting a GP? I, I quite agree. And that's mm. the point is not mm. to the point is not to say one thing or the other, is it? The uh. point is not to say, you know, you should be a GP. Yeah. Well, and okay. going to university shouldn't be the only judge of success. That's well, right. Indeed. So it's important just to get that balance right, I think. 26 past four, the panel, uh, NZ National. Now to this, uh, I was reading this article on how Europe's trains are just incredible. The reporter's words. This particular one, Deutsche Bahn, Karlsruhe, Germany to Basel, Switzerland, one hour, 47 minutes. First class upgrade costs 35 bucks. Leather seats and table service, children up to 14 free, 100% renewable power. And I thought, what's a great train journey you've done? And we've had some wonderful, wonderful responses. And with us now, I understand, is Nikki. Are you there, Nikki? Yes, I'm here. Oh, lovely to have you on, Nikki. Tell us Thank your you. Tell us your train journey and, and, and your story. Well, um, in September 2019, my partner and I, um, approaching our 60s, so we decided to go away on an adventure for dementia and we rented our house out and took off for two years or how long our money would last. And um, in, we went in September and we went to a couple of places and then we flew from Manila to Beijing and we had a month uh, in China travelling independently. We did nine train tri- different train trips and an internal flight and then crossed the overland border into Laos. Uh, we tried to do all sorts of different trains, different classes, different speeds and things, and they were all great. Highlights? Highlights. One. The highlights were the same all over China, the wonderful, friendly people that mm. we met. People were incredibly friendly. Um, the trains were all very modern compared to a lot of railways 
in different countries that we've been to. Mm. And um, the other highlight was probably our first trip from Beijing to the west, uh, and we were travelling along, cruising around about 300 k's an hour, um, and we got up to heights of 3,000 metres above sea level, and there was snow and slush flying past the window. It was silent. Um, Nikki, it was amazing. You're, you're painting a wonderful memory for our, all of our, all, all the country here on that train trip. Hey, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. There you go. That's Nikki's two-year journey around the panel. I'm jealous because I, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a dream of mine to go on a good train journey. Never done it. Oh, really? I've, I've, uh, I've done a few. I do a lot in Europe because I travel there for business, and it's actually a very, very efficient way of getting around. So I do the, I do the Eurostar London Paris a lot, uh, and I do um, Paris Geneva. What's it like? I train a lot. Great. I mean, really good. And because you leave, the point is you leave without much airport security. There's no security to speak of. There's a bit, there's a bit in, once you get into the, the European situation. But you get on a train in the central city, say Geneva, and you end up in a central train station in Paris. So you don't have to muck around with airports. Isn't and that just crazy? just right there. It's just no, great. It's Oh, all my travelling in Europe has been by train. I've travelled all over Spain, France. It's so easy. No worries about driving on the wrong side of the road. No hassles at airports. And as uh, as Phil is saying, they take you right into the cities and towns. If only we had the same thing here in New Zealand and we could um, have super f- fast trains, you know, zipping us between Auckland and Wellington and down south. I know you brought that up before, uh, Sue, because you're a big fan of that. Phil, you're such a big fan of train travel over there, but not here? Well, it just doesn't work here in the same way. I mean, there's no but chance. Could, but could it? The, the, the cost would be just massive. I mean, one of the reasons it works in Europe is they've got a massive uh, population and they've got a tradition of that and they've got big capital in order to do it. We, we're a tiny little country, really. We're a big country with very few people in it and lots of mountainous, uh, uh, you know, earthquake-prone sort of uh, country. So it's quite hard to do. But I'm, I'm all for investigating it, but I think it would be quite expensive to get the same outcomes as, the, as you find in Europe. Train tourism is huge and could be in New Zealand. All right, yeah, train journeys, first to Port of Nador, Morocco. I took a midnight train with my friend in 93. We boarded the train along with masses of local and a few animals. Six-hour trip, couldn't get a seat, ended up on the carriage footpath between Craig's seat on our backpacks. was a fantastic trip. Another one here, Australia, train tickets showed state flowers plus koi. Uh, another one here, uh, sleeper to, from Kolkata to Kolkata to Mumbai, several days, bought food from vendors, stations, rubbish and cockroaches, cockroaches accumulated in the carriages as we went. The loo was a hole through the floor onto the tracks. Uh, signs asked us to refrain in stations. Small cups of chai sold for a couple of rupees. Nothing remotely luxurious, but it was fantastic. And the sweet treats we bought were fabulous too, says Heather. Um, really great uh, train journey memories. Keep them coming. Uh, text me, 2101, or you can email the panel at rnz.co.nz. You're on uh, the panel with me, Wallace Chapman, Phil O'Reilly, Sue Keji joining me, 